If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If uh, portions of the Gospel lesson this morning uh, feel sort of like a two-by-four to the chest, um, that's okay. Sometimes the Scripture has that effect. Uh, But it's not the Gospel, actually, that the Lord has, uh, I believe, put on my heart to preach on this morning, but this passage from 1 Corinthians. The resurrection of the body and the eternal life that we will live in a resurrected body is the great hope of every Christian. It's actually the only certain consolation. Because it it is the case, right, that the Lord God gives us many, many consolations in this life. Uh, Material provisions, supportive friends and family, spiritual sustenance, spiritual strength, all kinds of things. But those come according to the graciousness of His good hand. Sometimes they come, sometimes they tarry. Right? Israel was in Exile for 70 years before the Lord brought them back. So we don't have these sort of certainties as actually there are false gospels out there today that say, if you just trust in the Lord, everything will get made right for you right away. That's actually not the promise of Scripture. That's the teaching of some guy who invented that teaching. What the Scripture does promise is the consolation of an eternal life beyond this one. A life that is so big and long and solid and real, that this life will seem sort of just like a preface to a book in comparison to the whole book. And that that next life is where things will be made right. That's why it's the only thing we can ultimately sort of, it's the bedrock of hope for us as a Christian when we go through pain and difficulty and the wrongs of others and all manner of difficult things, our great hope is that there is a resurrection of the dead and a life everlasting. I think one of the reasons that God revealed this truth to us, right? There are things which God has revealed to us in Scripture, and there's things He hasn't revealed. There's plenty of stuff we don't know anything about. The sort of things that medieval theologians tried to speculate about, you know, famously how many angels on the head of a pin. Uh, The Scripture doesn't tell us that. And, And there are things we don't know that we don't know about God. But He has revealed himself fully and sufficiently to us, and one of the things he's chosen to reveal is sort of what's coming down the pipeline, what is ultimately ahead of us in the future. And he revealed about the resurrection, and I believe one of the reasons he did so is to give us that lifeline to hold on to in the midst of the pains and the injustices and the difficulties of life, to have a hope, a real hope, that one day this will all be set right, that there is consolation uh, ultimately, but we may have to wait a substantial time by this life's terms until it comes. What's the connection between the resurrection and hope? Uh, that's where I want to end uh, in, in our sermon in this word this morning. Um, but to get there, I want to also just very plainly establish the fact of the resurrection of the dead because I think it's something which, in general, Christians are a little bit fuzzy about. I think many, many Christians in this land, when they hear the phrase, the resurrection of the, de- the dead, what they interpret is the immortality of the soul. But those are different things, right? It is the case by God's 
grace that our soul will endure beyond this life. But that's only sort of an intermediary step, a sort of a partial provision of the bigger gift God has promised us, which is the resurrection of the dead, that this body, there's a phrase I love from an old singer-songwriter, he says, um, we're all five cubic feet of blood, bones, and meat. Um, That this body will be raised from the dead. Uh, There's a graveyard at my seminary where all the priests who are alumni of that seminary go back to get buried. So there's 300 years of priests there, um, even priests sort of family members before even the seminary was founded got interred there. And walking through that, I used to love walking through that graveyard. Um, I've always loved walking through graveyards. Um, the, uh, I look at Laurie, because we talked about that one time. You, I know that you do too. Um, the, there's something about that just reminder of mortality and the sort of sober kind of crispness of it. But one of the things I noticed is that there was a season of sort of style of gravestones where it was like a embedded into the ground, a stone slab, and then what looks almost like a door slab set on top that you can see there's like a, an un, a loose separation between the slab and the vault. And it, it looks like it's the proportions of a door. And when you walk by it, it gives the sense of that sort of communicating in stone, this hope of that body's coming out of there again. Right? Like that, that, that is, and obviously you don't need a door to push open, but it's a symbol for the living of, of the reality of the resurrection. Um, and I think one of the things that skeptics have raised from right away of, well, what about people that die at sea? Or what about after you know, hundreds of years and the body's been eaten by worms that then got eaten by birds? That, you know, I mean, the, the molecules disperse kind of throughout the face of the earth. Um, this is no difficulty for God, right? He stitched us together in our mother's wombs. It's no more difficult to him to resurrect flesh that happens to be sort of roughly in one place or, or, or scattered everywhere, right? Like he is the holder together of the whole universe. Uh, this is not a difficult task for him. It's no obstacle. So we confess it in the creed, right? Every Sunday we pray, we look for the resurrection of the dead. I love that, that faithful, you know, we look for it ahead of time. And the reason that we look for it, uh, the ground of our having confidence that we're not looking for something, we're looking for something that exists, will exist, is because Jesus said so, right? Many, many times in his ministry, he affirms that he teaches that the dead will be raised. Famously, in, you know, just to, I was just trying to think, what, if the few, off the top of my head, a few places where Jesus mentions this is, uh, when in John chapter 6, when he says, if you've eaten his flesh, he will raise you up on the last day. Raise you up on the last day. When Martha runs into Jesus on the death of Lazarus, right? She says, I, I know there's a resurrection on the last day. Jesus affirms that, but he says, I am the resurrection. Um, when he is saying goodbye in a sort of temporary fashion to the apostles before his death, he says, I'm going to the place where I will bring you. Right? I am preparing a place for you. And in the many parables, especially the sheep and the goats, these parables of judgment, he speaks about the resurrection. So even though Jesus taught it really plainly, then as now, it requires something supernatural to take him at his word, right? Because nothing in our human experience corroborates this story. Like if I say there's a storm coming, or I've seen a storm before, weathermen are sometimes trustworthy. Um, You know, we have some sort of something to hang it on. The resurrection of the dead, none of us have seen it with our eyes, right? We haven't 
Uh, we don't have experience to back this up. And so there's, it's something that is an easy front to doubt on. And we see the Corinthian church doubting it. Right? We can tell from what St. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, what he's addressing in his congregation at Corinth, that clearly uh, they are saying that there's no such thing as the resurrection. That's what Paul keeps coming against. Like, if there's no such thing as the resurrection, he's kind of repeating their own man-made principle to them. They're just saying, well, there, there just is no resurrection. St. Paul's um, great sort of uh, rhetorical chess move is to say, oh, uh, no resurrection, huh? What about Jesus? Right? The Corinthian church was a church. They had received the gospel. They were confessing, as Paul had just got done re rehearsing in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died and rose again. The, the Corinthian church had no problem believing that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so Paul says, kind of, you know, if, if someone's made a totalizing claim, there is no resurrection of the dead, one instance alone is enough to sort of break open the human claim. So Paul says, no resurrection, well, what about Jesus? And, and their argument is kind of put on its heels because, well, Jesus was raised from the dead, so it must be possible that flesh can be raised. The tomb was empty, right? It, it must be possible. And then Paul would go on to say, I love this, I mean, the, the poetry of this part of scripture, he is the first fruits of the dead, right? He's the first one to come back from the grave in a resurrected immortal body. But trees don't just bear a single piece of fruit. He's the first fruits. There's more fruit to come, right? There's more fruit to come. There's more resurrections to happen. This is God's word reaffirmed through St. Paul that Jesus' own life, right? His, the fact that he was raised, it's proof and support of his own teaching that there will be a resurrection from the dead. As the biblical language has it, the righteous to be raised to a blessed, immortal, uh, just and joyful existence, and the wicked to a miserable existence. That everyone is getting raised. Uh, again, a thing I think sometimes as Christians we can be a bit foggy on. It's not just Christians who are going to be raised from the dead. Everybody gets raised from the dead. But then only those who are found in Christ Jesus, who have a life reflective of that, that's why it's called the resurrection of the just, those who've been justified, get to have an eternal, embodied life of joy. And those who are not in Christ Jesus will have an eternal, embodied life in misery. Revelation calls it the second death. This is Jesus' teaching in John chapter 5, Verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So everyone's getting raised, but there's two different outcomes after the resurrection. Do you see that in the scriptures, how it's holding those two things together? Paul preaches this very same thing in a speech recorded in Acts chapter 24. Verse 15. Having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I hope I've established clearly the scripture is very plain. There is a resurrection of the dead. Um, I hope you're fully convinced by that witness, both of scripture and creed. But what about it is so hopeful? What about it is so hopeful that 
so integral to the Christian life that Paul would say, and I don't, he's not exaggerating, when he says in the verse I began with, if there was no resurrection, sort of hypothetically, Christians would be the most pitiful, pitiable people. This would be the worst outfit to be a part of if there was no resurrection. What's the connection? Um, the connection is twofold. First, um, because we would be putting our hope in something in vain, right? It would just be a, a wish, a desire, unfulfilled. We would be fools, like, you know, sort of prospecting where there is no prospect if there were no actual resurrection. But also because we are sort of the eggs we're putting, the basket we're putting our eggs in for God's justice to be executed against those who've hurt us, for forgiveness, uh, for the healing of the wounds that others have inflicted on us, that we've inflicted on ourselves, for the great trial that is just bearing with like life in this, you know, as Hamlet says, in this mortal coil. Um, the hope that these things will be healed and made right, we have put in the next life. Right? That is where we are looking for it. Moreover, uh, what, we see, what we see from the book of Acts and from the Gospels is that by choosing to follow Jesus, we, are more, we will more probably have more difficulties in this life than if we didn't. Right? Jesus addressed what we heard in the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are you, blessed are you. He's addressing to his disciples, those who are following him. Right? That when we choose to follow Jesus, we're actually choosing occasion in different times and places, persecution from society, right? By following the precepts of Jesus, we we may choose to live with less, um, you know, many of you give very generously to church and charity, shaving off of wealth, which could otherwise comfort you, to be able to bless others. You're actually choosing a more difficult life because of being a disciple, right? Not just living for comfort, St. Paul's sort of the most exemplary case, right? I mean, he, as he lists in 2 Corinthians, often going without food and shelter and in great distress and bandits because of his missionary journeys, like all these things. His following Jesus actually led him to have a more miserable earthly life. This is where we see what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Plain, uh, sort of parallel with the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Luke's Gospel. He says, um, blessed are you when people scorn you now because he says, in heaven your reward will be great. So we can see that Jesus is juxtaposing this life versus the next life. Right? If you weep now, there is a promise of joy to come. Uh, there's, a, there's some deep mystery to the Beatitudes. Just two of the meanings, I think, of weep is weep with a tender heart for the sorrows of this life. Right? Weeping means you're actually... Um, staying tender in the midst of pain rather than bitterness which never cries you know so it's keeping a tender heart rather than being bitter towards god weeping also the fathers interpret this to be mean as a sign of true repentance for sin to be truly sorry for our sins if we live with that repentance now we will have joy and laughter later when it talks about woe to you who laugh i don't think the scripture is condemning sort of joyful fellowship and a good laugh like around a meal what it's condemning is that sort of worldly laughter that just isn't taking anything seriously and is laughing at dark things that shouldn't be laughed at. That sort of, I think you can probably picture it, that sort of coarse laughter. If we just live a life of that now, there will be weeping to come. Right? So that's the, Jesus is talking about the great reversal that will come on Judgment Day for all of us.
By extension, there's this Christian principle that for those of us who are in Christ, blessed are you who bear patiently the great difficulties of this life. Rather than grumbling and complaining against God like Job's wife, to bear them patiently like Job. Blessed are you if you do so. In the resurrected body, you will have health and life and comfort. Blessed are you who are born with difficult circumstances now. In the resurrection, you will be satisfied. Right? We're, we're not like the Gentiles, sort of scrambling just to make our world as safe and perfect as possible now, which is also futile because we can't control all the factors, right? We look to God for hope. For, no, we, we look to God with hope for healing and for making things right on the last day. If that hope wasn't there, uh, as Paul says, our faith would be in vain. But since it is there, our faith is not in vain. So I preach all this to just encourage you that while asking the Lord for temporary consolations, which it's right to ask for, right? We were studying the Lord's Prayer in Catechism. Give us this day our daily bread. To pray for physical relief from pain. To pray for a provision for a difficult circumstance. We should be praying for those things. But ultimately, we need to sort of anchor our hope on the ultimate provision of salvation, which also is sometimes translated health and healing, uh, on the last day, the resurrection of the dead, after we've died, when the Lord comes back again and he raises us to life immortal. For all of us who are hidden in Christ Jesus, who have chosen to have faith in him, who've been baptized into his holy name, all of us will be raised into that happy life. All of us who delight in our scriptures, they were like one tapestry this morning, you know, delighting in the law of the Lord, that language of the psalmist. As Jeremiah says it, those who trust in the Lord, and he kind of rewrites himself, those whose trust is the Lord, right? That's a picture of Christian hope, that we're not just trusting in some, some thing that was said once, we're trusting in a person, the risen Jesus, the Lord himself who rose from the grave after being crucified. He is the reason, like his face, when we look at it with our mind's eye, is the ground that he will make things right in the end. So I encourage you to put your trust there and not in anything ultimately short of that, but to maintain a, a true, vivid hope in the resurrection of the dead. Amen.